I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we're going to be just continuing. As Rob said, really this is a two-part uh, sermon. You didn't have to hear the first part uh, two weeks ago to, to catch on to what's going on this morning. But um, really these first 18 verses in, in this book uh, are, are really powerful, and, and we're actually going to read through it again this morning and there's something powerful about just hearing the Word of God read. And Neighborhood Bible Church is going to be a church that is going to preach the Bible because we, we believe it's the inspired Word of God. And, uh, and we are, as a church leadership, as a church body, as a church family, going to submit to the Word of God. And so that means that when we come together uh, on Sunday mornings and worship, as we anticipate teaching and hearing from God's Word... Um, I would challenge you as a family, as an individual, to as you come to worship, prepare your heart to worship in a way that says, God, whatever I hear when I walk in there, if it's from you, if it's from the word of God, let me just change my mind about that. Let me do what your word says. Instead of hearing something, and if you're like me, I I know I've heard things before and felt convicted and thought, boy, I don't line up with that. And then, and then walk away, and as James says, it's like you forget what you even look like. You look in the mirror and you, God shows you something. Instead it's saying, no God, I want to come with heart prepared to worship you and do what your word says, no matter what it is. Um, I just got home yesterday from, uh, camping for a week up at Yosemite. And, um, I, I come back, some people, some people find this, would be a form of torture to camp uh, in a tent with five children uh, for a week. And we actually find it refreshing and soul-filling. I feel like I came back just so refreshed. As we just sang this song that spoke about the majestic whispers of God. Um, I don't know how you drive through or walk through or hike around Yosemite Valley and, and the surrounding waterfalls and not just be inspired and not come away just in awe saying, wow, something much bigger than me exists. Um, and uh, so I am, if you find me scratching in odd places, it's because bugs ate me alive. Uh, so never mind that. Uh, try to focus on what we're, what we're doing up here and not on that. Um, this whole series uh, through the book of John is just going to be looking at Jesus. We talked last time, Colossians, just about putting Christ at the center of everything that we are, even camping, even our vacations. Some of you are heading out. Many are on vacation. This one family wrote me said, we will not be at anything in the month of July, and here's why. You know, just basically letting me know they haven't left the church or anything like that. They're just, they're just gone and busy. Another family came and told me they, this is their first Sunday back. They said, I wish we felt worse, but we haven't been here for a month, and it's just felt really good after the school year to just kind of slow down and not, you know, be, be doing things. But they got some good family time away. But putting Christ at the center of our vacation, putting Christ at the center of our work week and all of that. And so this series is just looking at Jesus Christ. And the reason we talk so much about Jesus at Neighborhood Bible Church is because the Bible talks so much about Jesus. And really, Jesus is the central theme and topic of what we are about as Christians. In fact, to deny the deity or the godness of Jesus is really to deny Christianity. It's to deny the gospel of the Bible. You cannot call yourself a Christian according to the Bible and be a follower of Christ and deny that he's God. We're going to look at a passage this morning. We looked at it two weeks ago, but that is going to introduce some topics that we're going to look at really for uh, several months now. And it's it's kind of a broad overview of some of the things that we're looking at. Just a couple of, of 
comments to, to preface before we dive into the word, and that is this. Um, as we went off onto a hike, we hiked up the Mist Trail. Some of you have been to Yosemite, you know what I'm talking about. It's the top of Vernal Falls, and we're walking. And um, they have a little Yosemite search and res- uh, rescue team right there. And on this bulletin board says, here's how many rescues have been made this summer. Here are the nature of these rescues. And it was like 110 rescue calls, you know, this summer so far. And, and basically it was educating people. Did you bring water? Does someone know where you are? Stay within your limits. I mean, some people are walking up there like they're go- cruising through the mall. You're just like, why are you wearing that, you know? Um, but it's just trying to educate people a little bit. And I've seen rescues go on where, you know, a horse was the only thing that could get up there on the John Muir Trail way up there. And I thought about this idea of the incarnation and this idea that, that Jesus came to earth. And it's this picture that God is on a rescue mission. And the one that he sent was Jesus Christ. And if you are up hiking in the backwoods of Yosemite and you break an ankle, you're just in a world of hurt. Because you can't just hobble to a car and get to a hospital. You need someone to go and get to you and bring you back. And that's exactly what God has done to us. We have split our head open and we're laying by a creek and we're helpless. And we cannot save ourselves. And God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to go on a search and rescue mission for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is all about. That's who he is. That's why we say he's our savior. Imagine if you were in that dire situation and you had spent a couple nights and someone came. I mean, what would you feel toward that person? Just on a, just on a temporal level, you'd say, gosh, you, you saved me. I mean, that's a huge deal. You saved my life. And Jesus coming to save us is infinitely more because it's for eternity. Uh, just a, a second thing that I want you to think about is this. Uh, at Christmas time, we, we think about Jesus coming in the form of a baby. And, and really the incarnation, though, that birth, that Jesus came and became one of us, the most important birth, most important day of, of all e- eternity, really. And it's what the Old Testament points to, and it's what, as you start in the Gospels, it talks about, and then what all the way through Revelation points to, is this central point where God became flesh, put on flesh. In fact, the word incarnate is really, it's a Latin word, and in the middle of there is, is carne, basically. And you think about, I heard someone describe it this way, it's kind of a good way, is chili con carne. What does that mean? Chili with meat, right? That's the good chili, is the kind with meat. And carne is just meat. And it's this idea that God put on flesh, and it's not that he took a human being and, and indwelt him. It's that, it's that he's all God and all man, and he came and dwelt among us. I want to just have you look for a moment with me. The first three verses of John chapter 1. Again, I hope you're seeping in this. This isn't the kind of thing you can grasp in a half an hour or 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. This is the kind of thing that you should read and then read again and then, then think about what you just read and let it kind of... Uh, marinate in you. And so your brain just kind of tries to get around it. But catch this. In the beginning was the Word. And if you'll notice, the Word is capitalized. It's personified. It's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. If you look at this long enough, you would all be able to grasp this, this little picture. Maybe you've heard this before, but 
The concept or the doctrine of the Trinity is found right in this passage. The Trinity says that God is one God. There's one true God, but he's in the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And right here in this passage, uh, the fact that if, if Jesus is the Word, which he is, the fact that he is with God demands that there's a separation from God the Father and God the Son because he's with God. But then it goes on and it says, and the fact that he is God demands that he is included in the Godhead. So right here, someone comes to you and says, where does, I don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. And you say, well, I'm sure it's in there. Hang on, let me start looking. You won't find the word Trinity in here. But the doctrine, the concept of the Trinity is woven through all of Scripture. And here's one of the places you could point to and you could look at and say, he was both with God and yet he is God. That's Jesus, the Son, part of the Godhead. We're not going to do a whole sermon series this morning on the Trinity, but that's just a little nugget that's written right in here, three short verses. I put some notes in here for you, and if you have really good eyes, you're allowed to follow along this morning. Um, And if you don't, you just have to take my word for it and look up in a magnifying glass later. But... um, I put some other passages on here. I read some of these last week, but Ephesians 1, 9 and, and Colossians 1 just talks about this commentary on Christ, the fact that he's eternal. And that's wrapped up right here in these three verses as well. And we sang about this this morning in the song, Wonderful Maker. Um, I want to read the, the rest of the passage here this morning, and then we're going to dive into it. So starting in verse 4, it says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh. That's the whole idea of incarnate right there. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, this was, he, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Father, we just ask this morning that you would open our eyes. We just saying that your word is a light into our path. And when we get out to a really dark place, we begin to see the contrast of lightness, of light and dark. And God, we just acknowledge this morning that we come humbly, not as those who have figured it all out, not as those who have answers, but God, those who are at times fumbling around in the dark and we are desperate for your light. I pray, God, that you would give us the wisdom and the courage and the faith 
to follow through and to act and to take steps forward on what we hear this morning. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Some of you may have seen the movie The Matrix. And in The Matrix, it's this whole kind of futuristic setting that goes on there. But there's a whole part about The Matrix that talks about the real world, like what really exists and what's really happening versus perception of how the world is. And that's what The Matrix is. The Matrix is this kind of fantasy-created world, basically, that's that's masking uh, what's really happening. And there's these machines that are basically harvesting people. It's pretty trippy. But, uh, but, but basically, the, the storyline follows this, this chosen one and this band of people who are living in the real world. They see the world for what it really is, and they're waiting for this pointed one. There's this one part of the movie where they go visit the oracle. Now, the oracle in this movie is this kind of fortune teller, seer type personality. And, um, and she's this lady who's in there like cooking muffins or cookies or something and smoking. And, and what's funny about it is as I was watching the movie, I was thinking about the fact that the Oracle in some ways is, is the John the Baptist character. Because John the Baptist was a guy who came and he pointed the way to the chosen one. He pointed the way to the one that's going to save all of mankind. And the reason this band of people went to visit the Oracle at her apartment was that they wanted to know, was this guy Neo, Keanu Reeves, is he the chosen one? Is this the one? And I thought, you know, maybe they did this on purpose. Maybe the people who even wrote this movie knew that John the Baptist was kind of weird. And instead of baking cookies and smoking, you know, John the Baptist ate, you know, locusts and, and honey and went around in a like, camel fur, like out in the, you know, wilderness. So they're kind of weird characters. But John the Baptist is brought up here in John chapter 1. And this opening section can be a little confusing because it talks about Jesus pre-existing, eternal, spiritual being. And then it says there's one that came from God, or sent from God, and that's John the Baptist. And it talks about this pointing toward the one who will save. And that's what John the Baptist's role was. I want to just offer you three things this morning. I want you to write these down um, in, in your notes this morning. And the first one is, is, is simply this. Just to awaken to the reality that this world is more than what it seems to be. If you count the number of times that the word world is written in this opening 18 verses, it's a lot. I didn't go and count it, but you can count it later on for fun. Um, But he's talking about the world. And I just want to make a couple of kind of opening comments about this. But the reason I say awaken to is this. In in the Matrix, there's this opportunity for for this person, for Neo, to get to see the world as it really is or to go on believing a lie. And I was driving to church this morning, thinking about just praying. I'm always praying, God, what do we need to hear this morning? I don't want to just preach what I happen to have prepared. What do we need to hear? What is it that we as a spiritual body, as a family, need to hear from you? Would you make that happen? That has to be a spiritual reality because I couldn't possibly dream that up. Part of what I observed, just as I was driving to church, this is this morning, I drive along Highway 17 and there's, there's probably, I probably passed 60 runners. There was some kind of an organized run, I think, going on at the Los Gatos Creek Trail. And I thought about the fact that, you know what, this isn't a judgment on these people, but worship is already happening. Even before we've gathered for worship at 1030, there was an organized run and there are some people who worship exercise. And they're just, they, they've, they've kind of given themselves to that and they're phenomenal at it. And there's people who are looking to find kind of community. And there's a, a neat little community going on with running there. And there's, in athletics, I've always found this, there's some great camaraderie that happens in athletics. 
And people around the world are looking for hope. They're, they're looking for a way to connect. They're looking to give their lives to something. Well, they're worshiping in some ways, um, athletics and, and running. Not out of, you know, evil, we're gonna go against God, we're gonna worship running instead, but just out of, that's what we're created to do. We're created to worship. I was driving by and as I got off the freeway, I, I rounded the corner and here's this big bus. It's one of those buses that takes people up to the casinos. Here's tons of people sitting at the park and ride right at Camden and Branham waiting to load on to the Cash Creek or whatever it was. They're going to go gamble. And I'm like, here it is Sunday morning. And in a way, you could say that they're, they're kind of there and they're finding community. They're kind of having church in a different sort of a way on a bus as they go up to go and pull slots. I've never been to one of the ones here, but, you know, uh, to go gamble and stuff. And I, I thought how interesting it is that there are just there are pockets of community going on all over the place. And I would venture to guess... That especially when you go away to a different country, Jonathan went to Zimbabwe this last spring, and I got to see some pictures from the Zimbabwe team. When you are removed from this culture, you have a better perception of what it is we worship and what it is we look to to be our savior. We, some of us in this room may struggle with going, gosh, why do I feel like the weekend is going to be my savior? Why do I feel like this vacation that I've planned all year long for is going to somehow be my savior? And then it ends up always falling just something short. And there's this line in the matrix I love. It says like a splinter in your mind. You know something isn't quite right. And and I would say this, that my challenge to you, whether you're a convinced follower of Jesus here this morning or whether you're unconvinced, is that you would awaken to the reality that the world, there's, there's more going on than just what we see right here and now. I love this definition here, awakened, to become alert and active after being inactive in a daydream or preoccupied. I think one of the reasons people aren't open to the movements of God and to what God is doing all around them all the time is they're just preoccupied. Whether it's movies or entertainment or cars or your hobby or the next run that's coming up or when the bus leaves for the casinos, whatever it might be, We're just kind of preoccupied with things. For me, going away for a week, and we just go on a media fast. Our whole family, we just fast for a whole week from anything. We're not plugged in one bit. That's just healthy for us. Just kind of flushes stuff out and goes, wow, we're really entertained by sitting around. There's no open campfires, so we sat around a stove. And we just hung out and told stories and looked at the stars and got bit by bugs. And it was awesome. And there's something about just unplugging from all of that that goes, Man, I'm really preoccupied with tons of stuff. And my wife and I, we made this comment that, you know, when you fall into bed after camping for a day, you're just exhausted, but it's a good kind of exhausted. I am so thrilled when I fall into my bed camping. I'm not exhausted, like stressed out and thinking of all the things I didn't get done this day and all the stuff that's waiting for me tomorrow. No laptop. I didn't even, I didn't have cell phone coverage where we were. So I just fell into bed exhausted going, thank you, Lord, for camping. And that's just a good thing. But awaken to the spiritual reality that's all around you. Remember this slide from last week? Maybe you don't, but I said this there two, two weeks ago, that things are not always what they appear. And um, if you look at your life, you may be able to have pers- perspective on things. Something was going on and you thought one thing was happening in this relationship or in this move that you were doing or in this job that you got promoted to or in this child that you were having or whatever else. And when you have time passed, you better look back on that and you can say, wow, God was really doing something totally different in my life at at that time. 
And while I was going through it, I didn't see it exactly how it was. People look at Teddy doing push-ups on Main Street at Disneyland and go, what on earth is that guy all about? Is he off his meds or what's happening? And what was happening was there was a rhyme and a reason to why Teddy was doing push-ups. He was involved in a scavenger hunt. So he was doing something on purpose right there, even though it looked bizarre to people who may have been passing by. So it is with our life. There's this darkness that's mentioned in, in this opening passage. And I just put on your notes there, you know, what is this darkness? One of the ways to read through scripture is to just write questions down and say, what does this mean? Why is this included in the Bible? Why would God allow this story to go on? Why does John mention the darkness? What is the darkness? I want to take a brief look at the word world here because the word world is used a number of different ways in scripture and the first one that's, that it's used is, uh, is this idea that the world is not a neutral place. Just some comments on the world as we see it kind of from a biblical standpoint. The world is not a, new, a, a, a neutral place. Most of us or many people might think that the world is just uh, open and curious about the things of God. But in fact, the Bible makes it quite clear that the world, because of sin, because it's fallen, is actually hostile to the things of God. Not only is it hostile, but it's opposed. It's opposed to the light. It's going against the light. A question that I've had people ask me, and is a very valid question, is this. This gospel you're talking about, this news about Jesus Christ, If this were really from God, wouldn't I be drawn to it? That's a valid question. Maybe you're in here this morning, you're asking a similar sort of question. You say, why why am I not drawn to that? If it were true, and I'm created in the image of God, wouldn't I be drawn to to God? And that's that's a valid question. The Bible says that people are born into sin. In fact, it says that even before we're out of the womb, we're created in sin. And that's the effects of the fall of mankind. And it's like a disease that affects us all. So as we come out of the womb, we're already stuck in a quandary. We already can't save ourselves. That's the power and nature of sin. And so the Bible goes on to say that people love the darkness. If you're born in darkness, uh, most of us, again, as parents, we don't teach our children to sin. We don't teach our children to be selfish. We don't teach our children to talk back. They just learn it all in school. No, I'm kidding. They... They just get it. They just do that on their own, right? I have to train my kids constantly to do the right thing. Constantly. And it's like you're on an escalator, you know, walking up. Train, 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 train. The second you stop training, they're slipping back into some bad modes, aren't they? Naturally, when I give gifts to my kids, they don't all say, Oh, good. They got more than I did. No. They say, How many did you get? We were hiking down from Vernal Falls and... To create motivation, uh, I gave out energy pills in the form of M&Ms. And so I'm handing them to my kids, and, and that's exactly the question. How many did you get? That's, that was the question, you know, to make sure that it was even. And that's, that's the nature of us all. We're driving along in our new car, and we're like, oh, that's a cool color too. You know, and we wonder if we made the right choice. And someone else gets a promotion, and we start mentally kind of checklisting. Wait a minute, I deserve that promotion. Very rarely do we naturally just say, good on you, mate. I'm so happy for you. So thrilled for you. Even people that we love, our fleshly nature just says, I want, I need, give me, give me, give me. That's the flesh. That's the world that we were born into. 
I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, but the reason uh, that, that, that the light and the truth can be really painful is that when the light of God comes into us and we've been in darkness our entire life, it's as if we're wandering around in the dark and everyone's bumping around and hurting and bumping their shins and can't see really clearly. And, and then someone turns a light on and our eyes are not adjusted to it. And it's actually painful, isn't it? And you can actually get mad at the person, like your roommate or something, who's turning the light on. You're like, shut the light off. You know, and what do you do? You scurry to put your head back under a pillow. You scurry back for darkness. And that's how it is with spiritual truth sometimes. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. But when that light first comes on, it's offensive. And Jesus actually says, this is going to divide homes. This is going to divide close relationships. Because I come and it's, div- it's div- divisive, this message that I have. God speaks and the world comes into existence. Bradley was so cute. My seven-year-old daughter, we're swimming in this swimming hole in the Tuolumne River. And one rock's above the water and one rock's below the water. And we're standing waist deep in the middle of this swimming hole. And she goes, Dad, I wonder why God decided to put this rock underwater. And I'm like, I don't know. But it's pretty cool, huh? And she goes, yeah. And she just gets it. God speaks and the world comes into existence. And think about this. God speaks is this powerful. If you were to do a study through the whole Bible on the voice of God and the words of God and the whispers of God, to realize that John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing Jesus Christ as the Logos, as the Word become flesh. It's an awesome thing to understand. And that's what Jesus is. God speaks, but there are others who speak, aren't there? There are other voices that we have. I, I just want you to think for a moment about this, that we, we live in this world where, where people understand things are wrong, and they go, here's why it's wrong. Let me diagnose why it's wrong. And there are a thousand books right now in print that you could go to Barnes and & Nobles and buy that would help try to diagnose your problems. Just by reading the titles, you would see that your marriage can be made better for about seventeen ninety five. You would discover that you would raise healthy, happy, well-adjusted, obedient children for only 12 bucks. And that's just, that's a, that's a steal right there. Uh, there's books on any number of things. Your own, your own holes in your heart, the, the problems that everyone passed on to you can be fixed for a mere, you know, $59 book, whatever it is. And there's all kinds of voices diagnosing, uh, what's happening. Many people seek to answer the questions that, that plague them. I just thought about some of them. Um, political and economical would say, if we just reallocate or reorganize or restructure, then equity and charity will win out across our land. As we move toward the elections, you're going to hear more and more of that. We've been hearing it nonstop. Is it working? I don't think so. Every election we hear this sort of a thing. It's just, it's just a reallocation of things. And then, and then you will no longer envy the people around you. That's not true, is it? We know that. We also know that this new house or this new toy or this new whatever isn't going to make us happy. But do we buy it anyways? Sometimes, yeah. So we know that those voices aren't necessarily uh, really there. Uh, Secular would just say this. The problem is human. I think they've got that right, that the problem is human. But here's how, how a secularist might look at this. Secularist just not having any picture of God. With the right education the right therapy, uh, the right, you know, um, care for our neighbor. If, if, we just, if we just start doing good, 
then love and, and, and peace will win out. We'll stop fighting. Things will be better. And again, that's the splinter in the mind saying something is wrong. An extreme home makeover and Oprah's big give and some of these shows that are out there that just say, do good stuff, pay it forward, pass it on, do good. That's an effort to just say, let's just do the right thing. But it never really wins out. Absent from God, you'll do the right thing for a season. And at some point, you'll get sick of doing the right thing and go, you're not even grateful for what I'm doing for you. I just redid your house and you're bummed about the color I chose. Fine, I'll go to someone else's house. Then they bicker and complain. It's just, that's the nature of it. Absent from God, good works only go so far. By the way, I want to make a quick plug. We have something called Beautiful Day coming up. And we have, many of you in this room participated last year in this. But Westgate Church and some other churches partnered together and just said, let's just be a blessing to the neighborhood. And let's do it in the name of Christ. Let's just go in there and serve, not in a pharisaical way that says, I'm going to do this to earn something, or I'm going to do this so that you will look at me and it will raise my reputation in the community. But let's just go in as humble servants, the way Jesus washed people's feet, the way that Jesus went and served, and let's just serve people. And coming up in mid-August, August 13th, 14th, somewhere in that range, is going to be another beautiful day project. Kel Cummins... Um, as one of the ones kind of heading that up. Some of your community groups have been on hiatus and you're looking for a way to, to galvanize and come together and, and put a project together. Jump in on Beautiful Day. This is a great thing to just, to just get involved with and to do it in the name of Christ. There are other voices. I would say that there are secular ideas that are being preached from, from pulpits every single Sunday morning that are basically self-help. Follow these three steps and your marriage will be happy. Follow these three steps, you'll stop doing that closet sin. Follow these four steps and your kids will be better adjusted and you'll get a promotion. And what happens is, it begins to teach a theology that's counter to everything good. The message of the gospel is, you're laying by a creek with your head bleeding and no one is around to help you. You cannot help yourself. No matter how much you know emergency training you read right then and there, it's not helping you at all. You need a savior. And what I would call that last voice is religion. Religion just says, do more, do better, do it more consistently, and you'll get it. And that leaves grace out completely. And Jesus is always about grace. Um, the voice that's introduced here, this logos, this word that's introduced here, uh, is, um, is, is not only one that offers a message of hope, but really is a hope. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology that's introduced. It's a person that's introduced. Listen to John 10. He says, Jesus talking, I am the good shepherd. The sheep follow because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. The question I asked earlier was, wouldn't I be drawn to this if it were, if it were from God? And here's the answer to it is quite simply, if you were, if this voice were from the world, you would be drawn to it. Because born in the flesh, we're drawn to things that are from this world. We're drawn to things that are, that are from the flesh. But the gift of new life is this gift of a brand new birth, a spiritual birth, where all of a sudden now, the things that used to repulse you, namely things of God, 
you're now drawn to. I don't know how many of your Christian walks or Christian testimonies went this way, but I have some funny stories from people who are like, man, I used to make fun of Christians. I used to think they were the stupidest people on the planet. And I would take every opportunity to just poke fun at them and say, you're just, you're lame for doing what you do. And all of a sudden, I found myself wanting to be with them after I became a Christian. All of a sudden, I found myself wanting to go to Bible study instead of going over here and feeding parts of my flesh. All of a sudden, I found myself drawn to the people of God. All of a sudden, I found myself longing to serve in a selfless way that no one else saw because I knew it honored God. And when you start seeing that, you go, man, that's got to be the work of God in you. If you find yourself holding your tongue where before you were a Christian, you would have just let it fly, just just say a little prayer right there. Say, thank you, God, for being present right here in this moment. If you normally fly off the handle with the temper, but all of a sudden you're developing self-control, you just say, God, thank you for this little fruit of self-control that's coming. That's evidence of you at work in me. If you usually take control and you can't let anyone else have control, but you find yourself letting things go, being more forgiving, being more patient, finding yourself totally joyful in a terrible situation, look out, God's at work in your life. And just thank Him for it. Say, God, thank you for this fruit that is developing in my life. The world is not only... A, uh, not only not a, a, a neutral place, but here's the second thing about the world. It's, it's, it's used sometimes as a theological term for all of humanity set against God. Here's an example of it, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When it mentions that, what it's, what it's pointing out is that the world, this, this sin, sin-scarred place that's against it, that's opposed to the light, God loved that so much that he sent his son to save all of humanity that's opposed to him. Thirdly, the world is a created place and exists by a spiritual being, namely that is God. And we just sang about that earlier. That seems so basic to a Christian, but it's really uh, an interesting comment that you, you just starting from a place that says God created all that we see. God sustains all that we see. And through the centuries, that's of course been challenged and, uh, and people have tried to dismiss that. The word became flesh is evidence that God is intent on communicating not just principles to follow, not just rules to live by, but rather he's inviting us into a relationship. He gave the law through Moses, the end of our passage says today. But then he gives himself in the form of a person to come and invite into relationship. The word is in the world, but the world, the world doesn't know it. The second thing I want you to write down is simply this. Just respond to the voice of God. So if God is speaking, if God spoke and God is continuing to speak, what does it look like to respond to that? This whole idea of, of RSVP. If you're invited to something, RSVP is French for Respondez s'il vous plaît. And I'm sure I butchered that, but that's what RSVP stands for. It's just saying, reply to me. Let me know what's happening. And Jesus has put an invitation out. It says he stands at the door and knocks. He invites you. And what does it look like to respond to this relationship? I had some injuries uh, earlier in my life, and um, one of them was, uh, was a head injury. That's why I have head injury on my mind today. 
Um, but part of having this, this cut on my head about 10 inches long uh, from a skiing accident was that when I went in to get uh, fixed up, um, they, they couldn't give me any anesthetic because it was too close to the brain and it may have shut things off permanently or something. So without any pain medication or, or whatever, um, they, they took and just kind of lengthened my hair like this and took a razor blade and cut all this hair away from it. And then they stitched me up. And through that whole process, I'm fully awake and fully aware of the pain. And I sat there and I just thought, this is incredibly painful. <laughs> and um, there was one nurse, I don't mean, there was one nurse that offered me her hand. And she must have been like, I don't know, she must have been, is there like one designated strong-handed nurse? Because I must have been squeezing that thing so hard. And I was just sitting there going, this is for good. My head is open right now and it needs to be closed. And so as painful as this is, I know it's for good. And in responding to the invitation of Christ, it's that same sort of a way. The light may be absolutely painful at first, but to just know this is for good. If you've ever had a bone set, this is for good. I know that this is needed. I need to go through this before I achieve healing, before I get better. When people at first just are antagonistic to your message about Jesus, don't give up on them. They're going through a process where they're being forced to deal with, ouch, that really hurts. And you can just walk through them with it. In fact, you can offer them your hand the way that nurse did and said, here, squeeze. This is good. And walk with people through that process. People are more apt to read and understand the Word of God in your life as a Christian then opening up you know, the, the, the drawer in the hotel room and pulling out the Gideon's Bible. I've heard some remarkable testimonies of people who've come to Christ from the Gideon Bible. My dad's a Gideon. He goes and passes Bibles out. But I think they're far more apt to look at someone's life and say, you should be angry right now and you're not. Why? You shouldn't be nice to me right now. You shouldn't forgive me and yet you are. How come? And people are able to read the Word of God in your life. And that's where God opens doors for witnessing. God opens a door to share, walk through it. Doesn't mean you have to have all the answers for it. You just say, you know what? Everything I have is a gift from God. And let me just share with you about some of the things God's doing in my life. And it's just, it's just a, a witness to what's happening, to what you see, to what's going on. This, this word respond. Look at these definitions. To reply, uh, something or to something in spoken or written words. To act or do something in reaction to something else. God invites you to take a step of faith. What do you do with that? Do you respond? How do you respond? I love this, the third one, to react positively to medical treatment. What does it mean if you're responding to the chemotherapy? It means that you're receiving it. It means it's having its effect. What does it mean to respond to the Word of God? It means that it's having its effect in you. It's yanking out sin. It's cutting out the cancer of sin in parts of your life. And it's painful. And it hurts. And it's annoying. And you don't want it there. And you want to reject it. But to, re- to, to respond to it means it's taking root. And that it's, it's creating healing. It's giving you the light to your path. I put this in your notes, but, but what does Jesus invite you to? Here are some things. Follow me. Turn from your sin to me. Trust me. Do not doubt. Only believe in me. 
The third thing I want you to write down is this. Believe in the path that God has laid out to eternal life. I don't know if you've ever been truly lost, but one of the things I carry with me in my camelback is a whistle because I've had too many close calls of flying off a cliff on my bike or whatever else, and I thought, man, if I'm down there, I want to be blowing on a whistle to let someone know where I am. So we had a whistle and and this and that, and we were on a really well-marked-out path. But if you've ever been out in the wilderness, it doesn't take, it's not that hard really to get lost if you go out hiking or camping. And pretty soon you're out there and it is a terrifying feeling to be really lost. I was lost one time in Colorado and I was out on my mountain bike and no one really knew where I was, which was kind of foolish. But I went out there all the time. I thought I knew my stuff. A huge storm came in. It completely disoriented me. I was up at 10,000 feet at this lake. I had been mountain biking. I was exhausted. Rain and freezing weather came came in, and I was lost. And I remember just being out there, and I put my faith in, I finally found the taillights of a car, and it had a Colorado license plate. And I thought, well, thank you, Jesus. That must be, that must be someone worth following, because they're from here at least. And I followed them out, and it led me to McDonald's, which was kind of odd. But um, it did. It led me back to civilization, and I was really thrilled. I had been driving on this dirt road for a really, really long time, and it led me out to safety. And when you're lost, I made a choice right then and there. I said, I'm going to follow this car. Now, they may be lost also. But in that situation, it led me to safety. I could have gone around there for days. When you're truly lost, and one of the metaphors the Bible uses is that we're lost without Christ. We're wandering around. We can't find our way. We make plans, but they never quite work out the way we want it to. Is that you put your faith in someone. And it matters immensely who or what you trust in, doesn't it? Because if you trust in the wrong thing and you've based your entire relationship on that thing and then that falls out from under you, what do you have? Nothing. When I was a kid growing up, um, part of my own spiritual journey was that my senior pastor, the one that I had sat under teaching for my uh, entire Christian life as a kid, my senior or junior year of high school, stood up in front of our church and admitted to a six-year affair. And it devastated me. I left that morning for a one-week ministry trip with my high school group. And I remember just crying with my friends over this, grieving. But I remember that exact day, praying, Jesus, it's you who my faith is in. It wasn't in a person. It never has been, and it never, ever will be. And so because of that, even though this person has let me down, even though this church may have let me down, my faith is not gone. It doesn't wash away like the sand because my foundation, who I trust in, is you, Jesus, and you'll never, ever let me down. And that was a defining point in my life. Several from that group of people have walked away from the church and never returned because their faith may have been in a person or an idea or a perception of holiness and not on Jesus Christ. And so that's imperative that we believe the simple plan that God's laid out Listen to this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Lean not on your own understanding. Some of you trust in yourself. Some of your neighbors and co-workers, they just trust in themselves. They go, man, I've been burned too many times. I'm not trusting in anyone else except me. The Bible says, chuck that. Don't lean on your own understanding. How many catastrophes in your life did you see coming? So many of them. You make your plans, but then the year comes and you just have to go with what goes. 
Lean not on your own understanding. uh, Jesus says in John, we're going to get to it, he says quite simply, I am the way. You want to know the path to God? It's through me. So get to know me, get to study me, get to be about me. John 10.10, he says, I have come that they may have life. Talking about us as people. Let me just walk you through the simple path to God that's laid out right here. If you don't know how to walk someone through the gospel, here it is right in John chapter 1. The gospel is really laid out all through the scriptures. There's the Romans road and there's some different passages you can walk people through. But right here in John chapter 1 is a great place to turn to. Just earmark your Bible and get to know, just be able to point people to this, to this reality. One is this, that God is in control and is, and is good. He is a creative God who not only created all we see, but created us. That's foundational to getting to know who God is, why we're here, what we're all about, and where we're going. And that's stated right here in John chapter 1, that God pre-existed all that we see. Secondly is that we are born into a world that is dark, and it's hopeless. It's, it's without any kind of hope. By nature, you and I reject God. And you can just find that in verses 5 and 10 through 11. We don't naturally receive the things of God because we were born in sin. It's this idea that sin is not just a series of bad choices, but rather it's a state of being from which bad choices continually come. Some of us think, well, I didn't sin today, and I'm not going to sin tomorrow and the next day, but once in a while I make some bad choices. Every time you have to go back and apologize to your friend and say, you know what, I was way out of line. I'm so sorry about that. That's not just a bad choice you made. That's flowing from a sin nature that you just have. And that's important to realize. Number three is that Jesus Christ is God and was sent to rescue us and lead us home. And that's this idea that God sent his son on a rescue mission. And fourthly, reach up and receive the hand of rescue that Jesus offers. Believe that trusting in him allows you into the family of God. I have sat with people and they say, that's all I have to do. I just have to believe. And trust in God, I know it's wacky, isn't it? But what if someone came along to you, dressed in the Yosemite search and rescue team, and you've been laying there, and they say, I want you to climb into a basket. And you had never seen, you know, Coast Guard rescues or anything. You said, a basket? You want me to climb into a basket? Yes. Okay, that seems really wacky. But you're wearing the Yosemite search and rescue team, and I'm hosed out here, so I'm going to climb into a basket. Yeah, that's right. And they climb a basket, and you're rescued to safety. And you think back on it, you go, that was such a weird thing to do. And I've sat with people, and I've just said, I know this seems strange, but this is what the Bible teaches. This is how life in Christ is found. It's by believing in him. Believing in his message, in his person, in the risen Christ, that he forgives all of your sins. And that's it? Yes. Okay. I'll climb into the basket. I'll reach my hand up. I'll say, I agree. And that's what the gospel is all about. Let me invite the band up and uh, say a word of prayer. I'm going to keep coming back to this a bunch. But at the very end of this book is John stating quite clearly why he wrote this book. And it's just that you will believe. And that in believing, you will have life. And John wrote this prologue as kind of an overarching pointer to where the rest of the book is going. And at the very end of the book, he says, by the way, here's why I wrote this. I recognize that this morning, even with a smaller group that we have this morning, 
That there may be some in this room that, like me, went to church for a lot of years and heard the truth, heard the Bible spoken, heard even a simple path to God laid out, but I never responded. It never took to me. I never did something in response to it. If I say, all of you, come follow me to the back room, I've got a gift for you. But you have to follow me. If you don't get up out of your chair and walk around and follow me, you haven't responded to it. You may have heard the offer, but you're not responding to it. And I want to pray just now. And if God's tugging at your heart and just saying, you've never responded to me. I've been inviting you. I've been knocking at the door. I want to invite you right now and let you know it's a simple prayer. It's a simple acknowledgement sitting right where you are that says, God, I'll get into the basket. I'll take your hand. I believe your message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that lays out things so simple that children can understand it. And yet God is so deep and so magnificent and so mind-stretching that the brightest people in the world can study it for a lifetime and not really plumb the depths of what you've revealed about yourself. God, I pray this morning that if there are those in this room that have not been born again, that have not been regenerated by the simple act of responding in belief, that this morning would be the morning that they say yes to your invitation, that they take your hand, that they say, I'm ready to receive this gift of mercy. I'm ready to trust in Jesus Christ who's full of grace and truth and will lead me home, will lead me to eternal life, will lead me into the family of God. And if that's you this morning, I would just invite you after the service, after one song that we're going to sing, to come up and just talk to me. I'm going to be up front here. And I'd love to hear about your decision. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to point you in the right way of just how to get started in this new life with God that's accessible across the nations any day, any time. Jesus, we thank you for pre-existing us. We thank you for being an eternal being who placed yourself under the constraints of flesh for a season of time that you would open the door for us to talk freely to you right now. And Jesus, we thank you that you're not in a tomb somewhere. We thank you that you are on your throne. You are in glory right now. You're being worshipped. And we acknowledge this morning, God, not with our lips only, but with our lives, that you are the risen King. You truly are the Savior of the world. And we thank you for that this morning. And it's only because of your name and your work that we can pray this this morning. Amen.